Hello and welcome to People Places Power with me, Nick Cull. And me, Simon Anhold. In this podcast, we think about issues of international reputation and foreign policy and a few other issues along the way. And today we're going to be thinking about countries that have a bad reputation, either because of a particular crisis or a regional problem or something that has happened or some circumstance that makes them one of the uh, trouble spots in the world. So a bad image. Is there anything that we can do about it? Where do they come from? Are there good examples of countries that have responded well to the uh, to the negative? And m- maybe the, the place to start um, is w- when we think about places that are in a bad region. Are there, uh, Simon, from your point of view, places in the world where every country has a, a, a bad image? For sure, there's something which I which I once called continental region brand effect, which is where you've got a, a cluster of countries that are in a geographical region and people don't know very much about the individual countries, so they tend to assign a set of values to the whole region. So, for example, we have South America, and you don't have to go very far away from the Americas to find that people really don't know very much about the individual countries in the region, and they tend to assign... Uh, a group of cliches or stereotypes, tropical, passionate, uh, corrupt, violent, troublesome, decorative, jolly in a way, festive. And that set of tedious cliches are applied willy-nilly to every country in the region, no matter how true it is. And sometimes it's very difficult for countries that are not at all, uh, don't have a lot in common with their neighbours to to get out of that. And we find those those regional images are very pervasive in South America, in West Asia or the Middle East, as it as it's often called, in Africa, of course. And I've often said in the past that aid celebrities don't do Africa many favors by branding it as a single uh, region with a single set of problems. This is less problematic than it used to be, but back in the 80s and 90s, you had celebrities like like Bono and Bob Geldof who would often speak about poverty in Africa and starvation with the best possible intentions. And there'd be a big black map of the African continent behind them. And they'd be talking about Africa, 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 as if it were a single place with a single set of problems. And this is very problematic because it may create some benefits to the least fortunate countries in the continent, the ones that survive on aid. Because if you stimulate in people that sense of uh, guilt and anxiety and compassion, they will give. But nobody's ever going to invest in a country that's perceived to be a basket case or go on holiday in a country that's perceived to be a basket case or anything that would produce any long-term independent economic development. So this has been really, really problematic. And for the countries in Africa that are nothing at all like the least fortunate ones, the ones that are, whose economies are growing fast, that are doing well, that manage their affairs well. That image of Africa is terribly problematic. And there are one or two places, of course, that have very regions that have very positive images. You can look at Scandinavia as the best possible example. And countries like um, the, the Baltic states of Latvia, Lithuania and Estonia, because they border the Nordic region, even get a little bit of reflected glory from the Nordic. So 
so very, very often in the absence of a specific national image, it's your regional image that you're saddled with. Are there examples of countries in bad regions that manage to develop good images? Thinking particularly, as you were talking about South America, I'm, I'm thinking about some of the discussions that I've run into in Chile, and I'm, I'm sure you've run into in, in Chile too, where they start to they present themselves as not being like other Latin American countries, but more like New Zealand or, or seeing themselves as similar to Australia. Do you think they've succeeded in distancing themselves from, from Latin America? Uh, the research suggests not. I remember when I when I first started working in Chile many years ago, some research was done on perceptions of Chile in the United States. And I think we, we mentioned this in a previous edition of the podcast that it turned out the number one association of North Americans with Chile was coffee, um, a product which isn't really produced there. No, I was going to say, yes. That's... It didn't really consume there either. The Chileans are just about the only Latin Americans who drink more tea than coffee. So the whole thing was wrong. And, and the Chileans are very proud of the fact that they, they, well, they don't think of themselves as tropical. Well, they aren't really. <laughs> they, they, they think of themselves, well, they're, they're often nicknamed uh, Los Ingleses de Sudamérica, the English of South America. They wear ties and collars and they're very proud of their European descent. And they like to think of themselves as, as organized and civilized and quite different from, from this classic picture of the boiling tropical blood of the Latins, with some justice. Have they managed to get that across? No, of course not. The Americas, as, as we've often said, are a large remote island separated from the rest of humanity by two vast oceans. And uh, even if you shout at the top of your voice from Latin America, it doesn't reach the other side of the ocean for years and years and years and years. So, yeah, little suggestions that... Chile, Costa Rica, one or two places are beginning to, some, some good news is beginning to percolate through into European and even Asian consciousness, but not a lot, not a lot. Mm -hmm. They're very powerful, these regional images. What about in Africa? Who shows up best in your indices from, from Africa? Because I know you've, in good country, we're starting to see Kenya turning up as doing positive things, and I think Tanzania too. Really and truly, this is one of the best examples of uh, the, the gulf between perception and reality. The Good Country Index, which, which shows one aspect of reality, shows that it's perfectly possible for African countries to, to be model international uh, citizens. As you say, uh, Kenya coming in the top 30 in the first edition. But in terms of image, well, sadly, in the Nation Brands Index, we don't often include a great many African countries. But when we do, they're all clustered at the bottom of the index. So you take a country like Botswana, which uh, people who are informed about Africa know very well is one of Africa's sub-Saharan Africa's success stories, a country that's been posting almost continuous economic growth um, and has been a, a stable democracy for, for decades and decades, mm -hmm. a very well-run country, a very, uh, a very desirable country in many ways. And yet, you put it in the Nation Brands Index and it's down there with the rogue nations because the only thing that most ordinary people know about Botswana is that it's in Africa and that's good enough for them. Therefore, it means it's a failed state. Last year, when Britain dropped out of that media freedom conference that it had been running with the Canadians, Botswana took over. I thought, well, that's really interesting that Botswana is co-hosting a human rights conference talking about media freedom, initiating a human rights discussion. I thought that's really good on, good on them. That's really, um, that's the way it should be, rather than just North talking to South or talking at South on these issues. Yes, well, Botswana is imaginative and ambitious. 
It's a very good combination. And, and periodically, from time to time, they produce projects and policies and, and, and behaviors that surprise and startle. And that's On the art side of things, I remember the year that uh, Angola won the Golden Lion at the Venice Biennale for a terrific pavilion that they'd co-designed with an with an Italian team. But uh, it was it, it really was a, a tremendous thing, an un, unexpected, uh, but reflected a vibrancy within the Angolan art scene and a little bit of oil money to help it along. And you know, they had great things to say. And there are other countries that are making a contribution in terms of arts in, in that region coming out of Africa. That, that example of Angola at the Biennale or Cameroon in the football uh, or Rwanda and the movie, over and over and over again, you see countries, not just in Africa, but all over the world, that manage to pull off one extraordinary stunt. And it does what they hope it does. It attracts a certain amount of attention, never quite as much broad public attention as they fantasize about, but at least amongst elites, people are talking about it for a while. And it lasts for about 17 and a half minutes. <laughs> and, then, and then people have moved on. And they've forgotten yeah, no, about it. And, that's, and, that's why you have to keep you have to keep delivering. It's not enough to do a PR stunt from time to time. As as I often say, this is this is not a sprint. This is a this is a relay race. And you, you know, it's like hosting hosting the the World Cup in the case of South Africa. You win the chance to host a big event like that before you even put your champagne glass back down on the table. That reputational benefit is trickling away. It, it's building a reputation is like filling a bathtub when somebody's stolen the plug. And I think that if governments could only keep that image in their mind, then they'd begin to get a bit of a sense of the of what's actually required here. And you know, Nick, it's the ability to sustain that that creativity, that courage and imagination, which is what defeats almost all governments. Some governments are capable of occasionally pulling off a remarkable stunt. Very, very very few are capable of doing it strategically and repeatedly so that you're actually behaving like a country that deserves to be admired. Um, you know, I've been thinking about the security aspects of a good reputation and looking around for an example of where a positive reputation actually helped. And I think that for Mali, during the militia attacks in, in uh, 2012, it really helped that people knew something about Mali that the library in Timbuktu had UNESCO recognition. So it was connected into indicators of esteem that the outside world was familiar with. And there um, was an outcry. Not to mention Salif Keita, of course. Yeah, but there was an outcry when those places were endangered and people mobilized. And you contrast that with the reaction that the world had when the same kind of people, Islamic militants, were threatening Afghanistan 20 years before. And it was all, oh, well, what do you expect in Afghanistan? You know, the, it's a graveyard of empires. We don't want to get involved there. It is a brand. It is a mark, a scar, a, a sense that nobody wanted to be involved. And uh, and the help that Afghanistan had had in the 80s had had dried up. So it was no wonder that the Taliban could do what they uh, did with effective impunity. I feel very, you know, I'm sorry, I feel very angry about it. You've been there, you know, those people deserve a break. Yeah.
But let's let's flip now to talk about what about new countries? Because one of the phenomena is that you have a breakaway province sets itself up or uh, gains independence and wants to present itself as some somewhere new, uh, somewhere uh, dynamic, worth paying attention to. Are there examples of successful startups where they're, where they're beginning from a zero image or uh, and are even having to teach the international opinion their name? The biggest problem in, in those situations is nearly always a weak image rather than a negative one. Very few places start off with a negative image, except to the extent that they're born in conflict, which is very often the case. So if you take somewhere like South Sudan, a country born in the crucible of conflict and the risk of civil war, it's not surprising if the country not only has a, an absolutely weak image on the day it's formed, but is also associated with negative things. People don't expect much to come of it. But on the other hand, it is human nature to wish well. People who are trying something absolutely new, fresh starts always appeal to us. The difficulty really is to get people to care about it, because if it's far away and it's small and it's weak in the classic international relations sense, why would anybody um, consider it? Why would anybody remember which country it is that split up and why? And who's involved? Who are the personalities? There's a lot you need to know to be able to follow a story like that. And the number of uh, people who actually bother to do that are tiny, tiny. That's that's often the difficulty. Were you thinking of, of anybody in particular of a I'm wondering about Kosovo and how Kosovo has done, uh, because they certainly brought in the Brandas at one point, but I wonder whether a campaign like their, what was it, Young Europeans campaign? I'm afraid I missed them. <laughs> oh, it was very... They obviously didn't spend enough money on media. They didn't spend enough money, yes, in the, uh, <laughs> in the media you look at. It won awards. But that says something that if they won awards, but you didn't notice, that says something. And I must say that, what I think Kosovo has done right is not spending money on national promotion. How do you think they're doing? I think you need to start off looking very hard at the cards that you hold as a, as a startup uh, or a breakaway province or whatever it is that, that, that causes you to come into being. And there's no doubt that if you are perceived as being something of an underdog, um, escaping from the power of a, of a big bully nation or even a group of nations, then that helps because people do tend on the whole to have a positive feeling towards underdogs. So, for example, it's not precisely a startup nation, but North Macedonia, when it came to being and in the dispute over its name, the dispute with Greece about whether it should be entitled to call itself Macedonia or not. I think there was... Amongst the small proportion of people around the world who were aware of this um, and who followed it, I think there was a feeling of sympathy towards this brave fragment of previous nations trying to connect to its own legitimate territory and history and to self-determine. And Greece, unusually, playing the big fat bully. I saw this wonderful thing. Very rare that I think that David Cameron, former British Prime Minister, says anything wonderful, but when he was an MP... In the 90s, he told the Greeks to ease up on Macedonia. Uh, he said, lest someone refer to Greece as, as Fopog, the former Ottoman province of Greece. I felt much the same that I hated to see Macedonia being pushed around. Maybe it's a, a sort of a, an instinct 
that people have when they're outside of a situation is you you look for the underdog you nobody ever roots for Goliath do they no that's right I mean do you do you think that the breakaway provinces to give them an unfortunate generic name Catalonia Scotland do you think public opinion is naturally with them in situations like that simply because they are self-determining because they have their own culture and their history and they want to break away does public opinion automatically default I think that may well be the case, that there is a sort of an attraction to the idea of a a little place standing up for itself and speaking out from under the weight of an oppressive larger entity. That would actually be an interesting research question to uh, consider whether this is a general phenomenon. I think that Kosovo has to take every opportunity it can to be relevant. That includes sport, arts, culture, all of these things to to show that it is present. The problem is, whilst the struggle of a country, a new emerging breakaway uh, province may be appealing, they have to be really careful, I think, about having an image that is based exclusively on their historic suffering. So, you know, one of the problems in the Western Balkans is that each one of those small countries will want to talk about their suffering and how terrible their neighbors have been to them historically. And, you know, the first item on the news each evening is uh, today our president opened a memorial to how horrible our neighbors were to us X many uh, years ago. And that obviously plays into a powerful domestic cohesion. But you have to be about something else internationally. I think you have to be about something else internationally. Obviously, countries have to have to have time to to get over these things. Those social and psychological dramas have to play out, and it mm-hmm. and it takes a few years. And it's pretty clear in the Balkans that there is still the necessity. There's there are still reckonings to be made. It's not really surprising if that's the case. But you're absolutely right that international opinion just doesn't like conflict. And one of the things that I've seen over and over again in the Nation Brands Index is that when two parties are involved in a conflict, it actually doesn't matter who's, quote, right and who's, quote, wrong. It tends to damage both of them equally. I've never measured, and I wish I had, the image of uh, Palestine in the Nation Brands Index, but I'm absolutely certain that it would be down there with Israel, near the bottom of the index, because they're both associated with conflict, and public opinion doesn't tolerate conflict. The flip side of this is that there are people coming out of Israel who have successfully identified the country with things other than the conflict. The whole startup nation story, the uh, talking about Israel's uh, wine exports and positive agricultural uh, uh, stories, which are very relevant in some places in the world. And this was brought home to me when I, I went to the Shanghai Expo in 2010, and the Israeli pavilion uh, presented the country, not as the country of of Moses, but as the country of Einstein, because Einstein was relevant to people in Shanghai. It was full of things like laptops and this display about the pill cam, this camera you can swallow that will uh, photograph your intestines, and really, really focused on what people in that city would actually be interested in. I now went over to the Palestinian pavilion, And the pavilion was dominated by a giant picture of Yasser Arafat made up of tiny pictures of uh, suffering. 
in the Palestinian territories. So they were literally branding themselves as made of suffering and all about the conflict. And there were lots of people in one pavilion. There was virtually nobody in the other pavilion. People were just lining up for the stamp to prove that they'd been there. You know, it's very hard when, when you are in a place of genuine suffering to find other things to talk about. I mean, I've been at some World's Fairs where Palestine did well talking about religion. So they do well in Korea because they can talk about the Holy Land, they can talk about relics and things that happened on, on their territory. But part of their tragedy is the, the difficulty in finding stories that are not connected to the conflict. I mean, Israel's uh, old habit of trying to change the subject uh, and trying to distract people's attention away from its geopolitical situation, I just never really know how effective that is because all my experience of public opinion is that if there is a big bad story there, a story of war and conflict, that is the only story people want to consume. You might think that people would get sick of it. You might think they'd want to hear something new, but actually it doesn't really seem to work that way. I remember, well, we often come back to Mexico, but I remember when I was working in Mexico, I was looking at the ways in which Mexico is reported uh, in the uh, international media. And it's fascinating how whenever something really, really good happens in Mexico, something extraordinary, it gets a certain amount of coverage and everybody's thrilled and they clap each other on the back. And then something very standard happens a journalist is killed, which unfortunately is standard in Mexico, and it gets pages and pages and pages and pages and pages. Mm -hmm. So that's the media. The media tends to reflect public opinion rather than drive public opinion, or at least they're locked in a kind of dance together. But the reality of the matter is that people prefer the story that confirms the story. The stereotype, yeah. The stereotype. So they're, they're going for conflict, accentuating negative, looking for problems. Part of this is human nature, that, that yeah. people are more interested in something bad than, than in something positive. There's negativity bias, and there's also a certain amount of schadenfreude, because if you're in a cozy place and you're, you're in a quiet country that's not beset by conflict, to turn on the TV news and see people suffering and dying, dying and living in appalling conditions... There's something in human nature that finds that strangely comforting. You know, it's like being indoors when there's a thunderstorm outside. And, yes. you know, you think to yourself, oh, I'm okay here. Yes. It's not terribly nice, but that is the way that, that, that I think most people respond. It doesn't mean, of course, that they're incapable of compassion or they're incapable of, of feeling bad about it. But it is part of the reason why these stories of negativity tend to persist and persist and persist. And And we've talked so far today about countries that have weak or negative images, largely not through their own fault because of historical accidents or because of uh, just a lack of resources or whatever it may be. But there are countries out there that also have bad images because they deserve to have bad images. Not very many, but there are some. And over the years, it's happened to me over and over again that I get governments uh, calling on me and saying, apparently we have a terrible image. Can you fix it? I would say the same thing. I say, are you by some chance a terrible country? And they get really offended. But it is the logical question, the most likely, re you know, people don't make things up on the whole. The most likely reason why a country has a negative image is because it doesn't contribute anything to the world in which anybody else lives. It's either a dead weight, a free rider on the international system, very common indeed, just doesn't do a thing, or it's actually harmful. It disturbs its neighborhood. It declares wars on its neighbors. It, it, it does all the bad things. And in those cases, 
I'm perplexed because the country says, what can we say uh, to make people like us and respect us? What can we talk about to make them um, see us in a different way? The only possible answer to that is you have to stop doing wrong things. You have to stop doing the things that have, uh, that have earned you a, a negative uh, image. And in situations like that, honestly, this desire to be in the media, to be talked about, is fatal. And, you know, when, when PR agencies come along and say, I can get you positive coverage in all the media, it's so predictable and it's, generally speaking, untrue. And I often think that if a PR agency came to a country in that situation and said, we can keep you out of the media... that would be interesting i would be very interested in a pr agency that can actually take a country with a negative image and keep it out of the media for four or five years while it just sorts itself out and builds itself a strategy and decides how it's going to benefit the rest of humanity and the planet and start earning a better reputation because you know you do measure that in five-year increments you don't measure it in six-month increments Uh, well what happens when bad things happen to good countries when or countries that are well known suddenly have something disastrous do you see good examples of crisis communication can you do anything to enhance your reputation or how do you how do you enhance your reputation in a time of crisis can you even do that or is it the reverse is it maybe during a crisis that you get the benefit of all the positive things you've done o- over the years that, that, I think, is one of the main reasons for, for being interested in having a good reputation in the first place. I often say it's like, a, it's like one of those uh, diesel generators outside the office building that keeps the lights on if there's a power cut. If you've got a good image, then you have goodwill and people are rooting for you and expecting the best of you. And that gives you a breather if something really bad happens. It gives you a period of time, a period of grace for you to recover and where people will be genuinely, generally assuming the best rather than assuming the worst. That is if you've got a good reputation. If you've got a bad reputation, the moment something bad happens, everybody will assume that it's your fault and you deserve it and uh, they will sink further. So the quality of the reputation, its impact on a country is most noticeable in times of crisis. Crisis communications is a, a notion that may work in the private sector. Some corporates are good at dealing with these things, but the timescales are different. When you're dealing with countries, it's really very different. And I don't think crisis communications are are front and center of what countries ought to be doing. Here, I think that there's some of the advice that a corporation would give that does fit a country. And that's the day of the, the, you know, the day of the crisis is the wrong day to start thinking about crisis communication. You should have been thinking about it for the previous 20 years. This whole conversation is is uh, really reinforcing what I think about reputational security. That if you have a good reputation, you have an element of security. And sometimes, if a country has neglected its ongoing day to day boring contact with the sources of opinion or the the opinion formers in a region, they can have regional insecurity. So an example of this would be how the U.S. Uh, in the run-up to 9-11, had pulled back from a lot of media contact in the Arab world. And great public diplomacy wouldn't have prevented 9-11, but it certainly would have helped on 9-12. And if the United States had been able to explain to the Middle East 
what was going to happen next, to talk through the language that was coming out of American government and American public opinion as they processed what happened on 9-11, they would have been so much better off than they actually were uh, when that terrible thing happened. So, you know, not only be in touch, keep in touch, don't expect just to talk about yourself uh, when, when something goes badly wrong. Having said all this, though, the way you originally framed this was when something bad happens. And the general rule I found is that things that happen to countries don't affect the images of countries. Public opinion isn't thick, and they know when things aren't the country's fault. The best example that comes to mind, we mentioned we mentioned Greece a little while ago, um, was when Greece had its uh, very um, severe financial crisis and practically went out of business and had to be rescued by the uh, Troika um, within the European Union. And the conversation in Greece at the time was very much about um, our, our precious image. We're going to suffer because this is going to destroy our image. Nobody will ever respect us again. Actually, according to the Nation Brands Index, uh, which is more than 70% of the world's population, had no impact on Greece at all. Because first of all, there was a generalized financial crisis going on in the world. It's a little bit like the pandemic. It doesn't affect individual countries. It affects all countries more or less equally. So it's spread more or less evenly everywhere. But secondly, the things that people liked about Greece hadn't changed just because they were in financial difficulty. And people knew that it wasn't the fault of the Greeks. They probably knew it was the fault of politicians. People don't esteem politicians anywhere. Um, so, so, you know, the, the, the reason why people like Greece because of its culture, because of its history, because of the wonderful people, the wonderful food, the wonderful beaches, the wonderful um, islands, none of that had changed. So there was no reason whatsoever why the world would suddenly change its mind about Greece just because its, its economy had, uh, was on the, on the point of collapse. And sadly, uh, I, wasn't, I wasn't doing the Nation Brands Index in 9-11, but I absolutely guarantee that 9-11 would have had no impact on the image of New York for a similar reason, because it's not New York's fault. And people know that. It doesn't change what they believe about New York. Catastrophes that are, that are visited by others upon countries or by destiny don't seem to have much impact. It's only when you do something bad. As with the relationship between people, when countries have a good reason, but then they do a stupid thing, the stupid thing becomes what people think and talk about. That's where the damage to the American reputation post 9-11 came from, were the missteps of policy and, and rhetoric that really alarmed world opinion. That's all we have time for today. Thanks so much for listening. This has been People, Places, Power. I'm still Nick Cull. And I'm still Simon Anhold.